You are now listening to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, welcome to episode six of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. We are finishing up a two-part mini-series on whether or not creedalism is compatible with Protestantism, libertarianism, or intellectual freedom. And so we took a look at the creeds of the Christian church last week, uh, and we defined a creed as a system of Christian or other religious beliefs. And creeds kind of function as the boundaries that determine whether or not somebody is a part of a particular tradition. And and a creed is like a summary statement of what somebody within a particular tradition believes. And we looked at how, while I don't necessarily disagree with the conclusions that the Christian creeds come to, uh, one of the problems with the creeds is that they have become, over time, interpretive frameworks that were imposed on the Bible instead of systems that were necessarily generated from it. And we looked at how a lot of the early Christian creeds were actually determined by issues that were taking place, political issues that were taking place within the Roman Empire. And so these creeds weren't necessarily something that were developed for specifically theological reasons. There was also a social and political element behind these creeds as well. So today we're going to look at what I would consider to be a political or a social creed, Marxism. And we're going to see that social and political creeds perform basically the same function. They create a system of belief that is then kind of uh, in interpretively imposed upon reality, and they're essentially there to define who is and who is not a part of a particular group. Now, we all do this, and both Protestantism and Libertarianism are, to a certain degree, creeds that are imposed upon reality. Uh, another way to look at this would just be to say it's kind of like a schema or a worldview. It's the way that, uh, that, that you kind of approach or think about things that are happening in the real world, but there are absolutely certain ways of looking at the world that are more creedal than others, that are definitive statements about the nature of reality that are then imposed upon that reality. And so political authoritarianism, uh, ideas like socialism, progressivism, and even even a lot of forms of conservatism, too. I know that, you know, um, the right does have some overlap between uh, there. There's a lot of overlap between me as a pro or me as a libertarian and uh, and conventional conservatives. But uh, they they do, I think, some of those ideas do generate authoritarian ideas. All of these are based on both implicit and explicit assumptions uh, about the way that the world works that are often treated like religious creeds. And so today we're going to look at the most pervasive of those assumptions and ideas, that of Marxism. And so we have to offer a short analysis of what Marxism is to see how this idea can function like a creed. And when I say this is going to be a short overview, I, I really do mean that. This is kind of an introduction to the, the the thought of Marx, and Marx has been one of the most influential philosophers um, in, in the last 200 years, and a lot of his ideas have seeped into popular culture. Uh, and Marxism does offer an interpretive reality uh, or an interpretive method that allows people to understand reality from a particular perspective, and that has influenced the way that we 
we have thought about and talked about politics uh, and society and religion and a lot of other issues as well. So today we're going to take a look at Marxism, take a look at how it kind of functions as a creed, and then get into some issues that are surrounding that that will become important in future episodes of this show. But before we can get to Marx, we have to understand Marx's single greatest philosophical influence, and that was a philosopher of the late 18th, early 19th century named George Frederick Wilhelm Hegel, uh, G.F. Hegel for short. And he lived from 1770 to 1831. And Hegel is one of the most important philosophers that you might not know because his way of approaching philosophy and of approaching history influenced nearly every major thinker in the first half of the 19th century. He had an incredibly uh, influential hold, in particular on German uh, philosophy and theology during that time period. And George Hegel's big idea is the idea of the Hegelian dialectic. And what it is, is uh, it, it's, it's, an, it's an, a way of understanding history uh, that is kind of interpretive and evolutionary. And the idea behind the Hegelian dialectic is that progress, human progress, is going to be inevitable. And so uh, this is very similar to, so Isaac Newton, uh, during the scientific revolution, more or less discovered the concept of natural law, that nature is kind of like a giant machine, and there are these laws like gravity that control and explain everything that happens in nature. And a lot of thinkers of the Enlightenment believe that if there were natural laws to, uh, the, if, that if there were laws for the natural world, then there also had to be kind of these laws that would govern society, these laws that would govern history. And so Hegel picks up on this idea, and he believes that there are laws that govern history, that history is controlled by these laws, and that um, because of these laws, history is constantly progressing. And so Hegel's idea of this dialectic is that history progresses when uh, two different and conflicting ideas come together, fight one another, and then form some synthesis of these two ideas. So you have uh, a thesis, which is, uh, is an idea or a concept or historical movement, and then there's an antithesis, which is like the opposite of the thesis. It's, it's another competing idea, set of ideas, historical movement. Uh, and the thesis and the antithesis are going to fight one another. They're going to come into conflict with one another. And this will eventually produce synthesis, which is kind of like a, a, a harmonization or um, a coordination of these two ideas where, where the best aspects of the thesis and the antithesis come together to form this synthesis. And so Hegel believes that all of history is controlled by this process. You have two forces that will uh, a, a fight and oppose one another, and they will eventually result in a synthesis, and that the synthesis will be better than before. Eventually, that synthesis will become another thesis or an antithesis that will fight another idea, and that will produce yet another synthesis. And so this is the main idea of Hegel's uh, uh, historical dialectic. Now, Bertrand Russell is kind of my go-to um, philosopher. He has a, a great book. He's a very a very old philosopher. He wrote this uh, great book called The History of Western Philosophy in the 
the 1940s, and it's still for all of the uh, all of the philosophers that come before postmodernism, all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Russell is my go-to guy for information about them. His book is very well written, and uh, he offers these really good like summaries, these 15-20 page summaries of uh, these philosophers and kind of the main ideas of their thought. And so, in his chapter on Hegel in the history of Western philosophy, uh, which is from pages 730 to 746 in that book, Bertrand Russell comes up with the three main ideas of historical dialectic. The first one is that history is objective, that we as thinking beings can observe and understand what is going on in history and that history will work just like nature does, that there are just kind of these laws that govern history. And ultimately that history is controlled by reason, that if we as, uh, if we as historians or as philosophers step back and look at the entire sweep of history, we can see that history is definitely moving in a certain direction. We just need to apply our reason to history in the same way that scientists apply their reason to the natural world. Um, the second aspect of, um, of uh, Hegelian dialectic is the idea that individual movements within history can only be understood by their relationship to the whole or absolute. So in other words, history is headed in a particular direction. There is a place at which all of history will reach its conclusion, and these battles between the thesis and antitheses that produce synthesis are individual movements on the road to this great goal of history. And then third and finally, this dialectic process of history can be apprehended through reason. So it presupposes an objective view of knowledge, which means that uh, through our human knowledge, we can absolutely know without bias, without presuppositions, without any sort of clouding of the minds, we can absolutely know how this process is going to work. And like a lot of other um, post-Enlightenment thinkers, Hegel is extremely confident in the ability of the human mind to both know and describe absolutely everything that is out there as a part of reality. He is not suspicious at all of the limitations of the, the, the human mind. He believes that humans can be objective, and if we're objective when we use our reason, we can understand that the direction that history is uh, headed. And so this idea of the Hegelian dialectic is built on the idea that there are opposing forces in the world that are going to conflict with one another. They'll produce a synthesis that will then move history um, to its intended conclusion or its intended goal. Uh, now, Hegel, really interestingly, Hegel starts his studies in theology. So he's kind of like this mystical theologian. Um, and this dialectic had an incredibly powerful impact on not not, not just uh, not just uh, subsequent 19th century thought on politics, but also in theology. And we mentioned a book by Magnus Zetterholm last week, Approaches to Paul. And he has a really great section on Hegel in there where he talks about how uh, Hegel influenced a lot of German scholarship. There was a very famous and important um, uh, school of theology in Germany in the 19th century, the Tübingen School. And F.C. Barr was one of the scholars who was at the four forefront of that school, and Hegel is just as influential to Barr in the Tübingen school as he is to Marx. And again, if you read, like I said, that there's a great section in that book on Zetterholm that describes this in more detail. Um, but also Hegel had a massive influence on, um, on political thinking during the 19th century as well. And again, the big idea of Hegel is that history is constantly progressing, that history is going somewhere, and that when we use our 
reason, we can understand and perhaps even control the process of history. There is a destination. There is a goal to all of human history. And by using our reason, we can understand how history is developed and help control where it is going. Now, for Hegel, when he thought about politics, um, his his kind of his contribution was that he believed that democracy was kind of this thesis. The aristocracy was this antithesis and that the synthesis of these would be kind of like an enlightened monarch. And so Hegel's own approach to politics was that there would be this kind of enlightened monarch who would be able to sit on a throne uh, somewhere and by using his reason just kind of dictate how all of the, all of his subjects should live the right way. And this very intelligent, wise, rational monarch could govern society in a fair and appropriate way. Now, everything that Hegel says here is completely in line with Enlightenment optimism. And we'll, we'll talk about the Enlightenment more in subsequent episodes of this show, but the Enlightenment produces great optimism about the ability for human beings to use their reason and to use their mind to understand not just nature, but every single aspect of the world. And Hegel is kind of like the ultimate example of that when it comes to history. Hegel's dialectic is a method of analyzing history that allows us to see both where history has come from and where it's going to go in the future and it will allow us to uh, and it will allow us to potentially even control the destination of human history. Now Karl Marx um, who lived from 1818 to 1883. He is a disciple of Hegel. And again, he's not unique in this. And uh, those, of you guys, uh, th- those of you guys that come from the Protestant perspective, there, there, there's a great chance, I know it's true for me as well, there's a great chance that your beliefs about the Bible are influenced to a certain degree by Hegel without even knowing it. And we'll, I hope that we can kind of disaggregate that on a, a future episode as well. But Hegel is massively, massively influential, and his influence is still being felt in the Academy today. But Karl Marx is a disciple of Hegel, and he believed in this historical dialectic, that history was going to progress inevitably forward, and that we can understand the process of history. Now, Karl Marx has a different version of um, Hegel's historical dialectic than Hegel does. So for him, the uh, the uh, thesis in this thesis, uh, antithesis, since synthesis dialectical process, the thesis is feudalism, which is that system where uh, land ownership is the means to uh, wealth and social control. And so the, the, the um, thesis for him is feudalism. The antithesis is capitalism as defined as kind of this exploitative, greedy. We talked, we talked about the definition of capitalism a few weeks ago. I don't think Karl Marx understood what it meant. Um, but it's feudalism. Capitalism is defined by Marx and that when the thesis of feudalism comes into conflict with the antithesis of capitalism, these two will collide and produce socialism. And socialism, and then eventually communism, is the ultimate goal of human history. And for Karl Marx, like he believes, he believes to his core, um, he really does, that this is, that, that socialism is the thing that is going to set the human race Free. And again, this is all based on Hegel's dialectic that history is progressing inevitably forward. And Karl Marx believes that human beings have to go through this process of feudalism against capitalism, and then that will result in uh, progress. And that progress is socialism. So obviously, Karl Marx's greatest uh, greatest work on this, his short work, is the Communist Manifesto. Um, and I'm going to highly recommend.
recommend that everyone read it. If you're a libertarian, you really do need to read the Communist Manifesto. The great thing is it's only like 45 pages long, uh, and and it's 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 very clearly written. Like I, you know, Karl Marx, I think that he has a lot of shortcomings as an intellectual, but uh, but he lays out his case in an extremely clear and straightforward way in the Communist Manifesto. It's not obscure at all, and so I would highly recommend that. But I just want to take a sample of a couple of things that he says in the Communist Manifesto here, and kind of and kind of show you how that relates back to Hegel. And again, for Marx, Hegelian dialectic is kind of like a creed in the same way that Christians have approached the New Testament from through the lens of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Karl Marx is going to approach history through this Hegelian dialectic creed, this belief that all of human history can be objectively understood by human reason and that it is going, it is headed in a certain direction. And so we can see this pretty obviously in the Communist Manifesto, which Karl Marx wrote, I think, on the eaves of the revolutions in Europe of 1848. So on page six of the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says that all of history is a class struggle. And so this class struggle can kind of be disaggregated into a uh, synthesis-antithesis conflict uh, of the bourgeois, the group of kind of land-owning, uh, either feudal land-owning or capitalist um, business-owning people that are wealthy and the proletariat. And the idea behind these two groups is that they are always going to be in conflict with one another. The proletariat's kind of like the working class. And so from Hegel's perspective, the bourgeois must fall in order for emancipation, for freedom to happen. Again, Karl Marx's goal is that history is headed in a certain direction. Ultimately, and everyone is going to be free, at least free in the sense that Karl Marx thinks that people should be free. And this ruling class, the bourgeois, has to be overthrown by the proletariat in order for that to take place. And so history is going necessarily in the direction of the fall of the bourgeois, this land-owning uh, capitalist uh, class, according to Karl Marx, and the proletariat will eventually be in charge. And so on page nine, he sets out another dialectic between oppressor and oppressed, and he divides people up into two groups. And so again, the people that are the Oppressors are the bourgeois. These are the landowners, the business owners, the as he calls them, the capitalist. And the the groups that are oppressed are the proletariat, the workers, the people that, from Marx's perspective, are at the bottom. And there's this dialectic between these two groups that the oppressor and the oppressed are going to have to fight each other. Uh, and because history is objective and history is subjected to natu natural laws, Karl Marx is going to project this division between the bourgeois and the proletariat back into history and then also into the future of between these class struggles between these two groups. Now, one of the frustrating things about Karl Marx is that literally everything that he doesn't like, uh, and he lays this all out, things like private property, things like the private ownership of capital uh, and labor, family, national identity, even theology, all of these things that he, all of these things he identifies as bourgeois interests. And again, if history is necessarily headed in the direction of eliminating uh, the bourgeois and allowing the proletariat to be free or emancipated, all of those things absolutely have to be destroyed. No more private property, no more family identity or national identity, no more theology. All of these things just reinforce the ruling class, the bourgeois class. And in this great historical dialectic, this great creed that he appropriates and develops from Hegel, none of those things can exist in the future. And again, all of these 
ideas are based on his belief in a progressive universal law, this creed that he adopts from Hegel. And because he believes that history is objective and headed somewhere, Marx says that his conception of history will eventually come to pass. Now, he lays the groundwork for probably what is the most uh, controversial of all philosophies today, and that is critical theory. And on page 24 and 41 of the Communist Manifesto, he explicitly explains how um, he has to attack absolutely every principle of existing society. Everything that exists that Karl Marx does not like is a part of this bourgeois class. And in the great uh, coming dialectical struggle between the bourgeois and the proletariat, all of those things have to be destroyed. Now, critical theory, uh, you know, is is obviously based on Marx. And there are a lot of really good books uh, about this out there right now, even though I I think at a popular level, people don't generally understand what the, the the philosophical idea of critical theory is. And while I'm not going to be able to give a detailed analysis of critical theory today, that will have to wait for another episode, but it is coming, believe me. I'm hoping to do that before the end of the year for sure. I want to just show how critical theory, since it is kind of the dominant, uh, the dominant uh, creed of leftism right now, relates back to Karl Marx and even back uh, behind Karl Marx to George Frederick Hegel. Um, so the architects of critical theory are a group of Marxists, uh, they're German, known as the Frankfurt School. And this group of philosophers that were originally from Germany applied this Hegelian or Marxist interpretation of dialectical history to all social relationships. And so one of the things, there's a really good book on this, I think Bronner is the name of the, uh, of the philosopher who wrote the book, but there's an introduction on critical theory. Uh, it's called A Very Short Introduction to Critical Theory. It's like an Oxford, uh, part of an Oxford series of short introductions, but it's really good and it's written by someone who is a critical theorist. So he kind of gives you an inside look at this. But one of the points that he makes about critical theory in that book is that all of these philosophers of the Frankfurt School were Marxist, but they wanted to take Marx's uh, I dialectical idea of this uh, kind of conflict between the bourgeois and the proletariat, and they want to apply that generally to all social relationships. And so the idea of critical theory is to analyze power relations in society. Again, these dynamics between kind of like a bourgeois group and a proletariat group through the oppressor slash oppressed dichotomy that was articulated in Marx. And the goal of critical theory, just like with Karl Marx, is that liberation or freedom for these oppressed classes is the, the synthesis, is the goal of human history. And so while Marx uh, kind of excluded his interpretation of history to economic issues, that the bourgeois are the ones that control the money and the economic power and the proletariat are the ones that work for them, the Frankfurt School is going to apply that dichotomy to all kinds of other relationships. And so when you get to uh, an, an idea like critical, like critical race theory or critical gender theory, it's this idea of an oppressor and oppressed dynamic uh, interpreted or imposed on race or gender. So you have uh, people of a certain racial background that are going to naturally be the oppressors, and you have people of a certain racial background that are naturally going to be the oppressed. So the Frankfurt School allows philosophers to take the, insi the insights of Marx, which are really um, based on the insights of Hegel, and apply these to all social relationships. Uh, and the argument that I want to make here is that both Hegel's theory of history and Marx's theory of economic relationships are 
both creeds that are used in contemporary culture today to analyze history and current events. Now, just like with the creeds that we looked at in the Christian church last week, it doesn't make them a priori false. Like just because Karl Marx is using this historical framework of Hegel, it doesn't necessarily mean that from the get-go Karl Marx is necessarily wrong. But like the creeds of the early church, they are an interpretive re- or an interpretive framework that is imposed on reality. So instead of kind of letting observation and the evidence of reality uh, allow us to analyze or critique things like Hegel or things like Marx. Um, the Hegelianism and Marxism has been applied through the critical theory school to all aspects of reality today and has become, unfortunately, the dominant interpretive method of reality for many, many people on the left. So the interpretive problem here is that creeds like the historical dialectic and like class conflict make it very difficult to have nuanced conversations about history, politics, and theology because they assume from the start that when you look at what is going on in the world, you will necessarily arrive at a certain conclusion. If history is objective and headed somewhere, then you can't interpret what has happened in the past historically as anything other than stages on the road to the great final goal of human history. So Hegel and Marx, they both provide frameworks for understanding human history that are then imposed on all the data, uh, which is why you can have Marxist scholars who offer Marxist reading of history, and you can have critical theorists that offer kind of critical analyses of what's going on in the modern world. And like all hermeneutical or interpretive methods, they're, they're all kind of like this, but again, Hegelianism and Marxism are deliberately designed to impose a certain framework upon reality. Um, and one of the things that one of the things that happens because of this is that it makes it almost impossible for people that have accepted these creeds wholesale, uh, full stop, to to ha- to even open themselves up to other approaches or other points of view. And Karl Marx explicitly says on page twenty eight of the Communist Manifesto that all critiques of his view of history and of reality reality are not worth exploring because anyone that would critique Karl Marx is obviously just manifesting bourgeois values. He's decided from the beginning that anyone that disagrees with him is just a part of this bourgeois class or uh, anyone that disagrees with him have internalized bourgeois values. And so there's no point for Marx to exploring any sort of alternatives. He's so confident that his understanding of history based on Hegel is absolutely philosophically air tight. And you get this a lot with the critical theory school, the whole idea of like silence is violence and other popular slogans that we've heard today. It's that if you have any points of view that diverge from kind of this critical approach to understanding power dynamics in society, you're just manifesting, you're just manifesting the the values of the, the oppressor group of the people that have power in society, which means that having any sort of rational conversation is immediately cut off from the beginning. And Bertrand Russell, man, Bertrand Russell is not very kind in his history of Western philosophy to either Marx or to Hegel. One of the things that he says, I think page 788, 789 in his book about Marx, and he has a great chapter on this too, um, he says that all elements in Marx that are derived from Hegel are unscientific. And then on 735, he says of Hegel that Hegel's theory of history is built on the distortions of facts and considerable ignorance. So Bertrand Russell is a philosopher 
from the 1940s. And Bertrand Russell is no man of the right. He, like, he's not a libertarian. Bertrand Russell is definitely a, kind of like an old school liberal, believes that the government can solve social problems there. But Bertrand Russell realizes, I think, what we're talking about today is that Marxism and Hegelianism are both kinds of uh, ways of understanding reality where they take these grand theories uh, that aren't necessarily su- empirically supported by what's going on in the world, and they impose them upon all history. And again, going back to this idea, this is similar to all of these critical theory approaches to history that presupposes that all of society are defined, or that every relationship in society is defined by these powerful, uh, these power hierarchies. And so all attempts to give alternative assessments of these data points are treated as examples of systemic power uh, and all of those things. And again, that's why someone can say that any alternative view is inherently racist, uh, because it's not based on the intention of the person making the argument, but on the idea that, you know, if there are all these race-based or gender-based power dynamics in society, anyone that disagrees with the critical theory approach is either racist or sexist or whatever. And there's a book, I read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, a few years ago. Those of you guys that are interested in these cultural issues have probably heard about it, but the entire idea of white fragility is that uh, is that white people that criticize Robin D'Angelo's understanding of race are exercising white fragility because anyone because basically the way that she works out the argument in this book is that she she's a critical theorist or at least her her ideas are based on critical theories critical race theory and so there's the idea that white people have all of this power in society and that they use it to oppress uh, people of different colors in society and so any white person that disagrees with Robin D'Angelo's interpretation of race-based power relationships is exercising white fragility because they are demonstrating that they don't understand that they are a part of this oppressor group. And so from the beginning, like within the first few pages of Robin D'Angelo's book, she falls back on that same mistake that Karl Marx makes in the Communist Manifesto, where everyone that disagrees with her is necessarily wrong, because if you're disagreeing with her, you're taking the side of the oppressed group, or the oppressor group, and that oppressor group necessarily has to give way to the oppressed groups in order for history to progress. And so we can see how Marxism and Hegelianism as creeds make it, again, almost impossible for us to have true intellectual freedom, true intellectual dialogue, nuanced understandings of history. All of those are completely eliminated if you hold to these as creeds. Now, I'm going to make the argument here as we get towards the end of the show that both libertarianism and Protestantism allow us to overcome the constraints of these creeds. And as we said last week, and I said it at the beginning of the show and I'll say it again, I am a Protestant and I, I think that the creeds get a lot right. But if we believe as Protestants that the Bible is the only source of authority, which is something that we believe uh, thoroughly on this show— it, force us, it forces us to think about what the Bible actually says and then challenge all ideas based on the Bible. So we have to deal with these early Christian creeds as historical documents. Uh, and while many of the ideas that are articulated in these Christian creeds may in fact correspond to what we read in the Bible, we cannot allow the creeds to constrain and determine beforehand our interpretation of the Bible. We have to approach the Bible with the 
the intellectual freedom to allow it to tell us what it wants to say instead of imposing our own understanding of reality through the creeds onto the Bible. Again, the creeds very well may be correct, but we still have to critique them based on a legitimate historical understanding of the Bible. Liberty does the exact same thing in the political sphere. It allows people to make their own decisions about how history works and about how society should work and about how relationships need to be organized um, within the, the social sphere. And the unfortunate reality of, of critical theory is that you know libertarians are very concerned about power in society. I mean, the entire idea behind one of the one of the ideas behind libertarianism is that the state has a monopoly on violence and that the state, when given power, will almost always use that power to hurt and oppress people. And so there's a lot of overlap between kind of like, uh, but bet- there's a lot of overlap between at least the concerns of the critical theory school and some philosophers that have been um associated with that, and that critical theory, like Marx to a certain degree, is concerned with the use of power in society. That's definitely an overlap between libertarian thought and kind of this Hegelian Marxist uh, critical theory approach to reality. Um, but it, but the unfortunate thing is that it does so within that kind of political creedal perspective that history has a goal, that it's headed somewhere, and that we can objectively understand that by using our um, reason. And I think that this is this is the fatal flaw with critical theory is that while, yes, I applaud people for trying to explore the way that power works in society, they're not doing it from a libertarian perspective. They're doing it from a Marxist Hegelian perspective, which is not necessarily based on any sort of empirically grounded uh, reason or empirically grounded understanding of history. And we haven't gotten a chance to talk about my postmodernist commitments. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that conflate critical theory and postmodernism. And I think that's a a big mistake. One of the main tenets of postmodernism is that human beings are very subjective and that we cannot 100% understand things objectively without our, our biases or anything like that. And so there's no way for human beings to completely understand history from an objective perspective. And I think that that tracks on to more of a libertarian approach to the world than it does to kind of the Marxist critical theory approach. But we'll have to, uh, we'll have to outline that in another episode. The other thing about this uh, this idea too here is that capitalism is not really a creed. When we defined capitalism and socialism a couple of episodes ago, capitalism is a non-system. Like capitalism doesn't have a specific goal in mind. So the idea of capitalism is that while it does make people better off, we're not really sure how we're not really sure how it's going to do that in the future. So the great thing about capitalism, uh, and, and again, this is a part of libertarian philosophy about the state getting out of human beings producing and working and making things that people want is that capitalism allows for producers to meet dynamic consumer needs, consumer needs that are constantly changing, and meet those demands in innovative ways. Capitalism does not have a plan. It does not have a goal. It does not have a final structure. All that capitalism is is a system where the government gets out of the way so that producers and consumers can come together in the market and decide what needs to be made to best satisfy human needs. And so libertarianism 
feminism as a, a philosophical approach deals with power in society by trying to by trying to distribute it to as many people as possible by uh, by saying that power should not be centralized in the hands of the state and capitalism is just the economic extension of that and the great thing about libertarianism capitalism and then Protestantism as well is that all of these ways of thinking about the world can operate without recourse to any sort of final goal or teleology any sort of any sort of great in the teleology is just the way that we understand how uh, human history is going to wrap up um all these systems can operate without that. Like we need to reject this Hegelian idea that history is necessarily headed in a certain direction and that we through our human reason can understand all of the dialectic steps that history will take to reach its final goal. And this is one of the things that I've gotten from reading the postmodern philosophers and then from other philosophers that are kind of associated with that idea. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolution in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about Michelle Foucault. We're going to talk about Ludwig von Wittgenstein, who uh, kind of comes up with this idea. All of these philosophers here approach different branches of human knowledge with the idea that we should not be understanding history with an end goal in mind, that we should just look at the evidence, that we should try to understand history and society and the world around us without thinking that there's some sort of historical goal out there to which we are necessarily progressing. And again, the idea that there is a destination for the human species that we can objectively know comes from Hegel. It is a creed that is exercised in an enormous amount of influence on the way that people in the Western world have understood history, and we need to reject that. So creedalism, uh, creedalism can, and creedalism does and can constrain the way that we understand history and society, and we have to get away from the idea that we are headed in a certain direction. Also, as we said before, creeds make it almost impossible to be intellectually honest because if your interpretation of reality is based on the need to arrive at a certain set of creedal conclusions, whether it's theological about the nature of Jesus's relationship to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, or whether it's uh, it's philosophical or political about the need for human emancipation in a certain way, a la Hegel or Marx, it makes it really hard for us to be sensitive to the evidence and to open our minds long enough to change it. And it creates it creates an interpretive method for reality that's 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 implicitly unassailable. Like if you believe in the Marxist or the Hegelian interpretation of history, Karl Marx has basically cut off the possibility that you could understand history in any other way. And that creates a problem because it doesn't it doesn't give us the intellectual freedom that we need to think about things critically and to come to a better understanding of reality. And again to wrap this all up, this is exactly why creeds should always be subject to, criti- uh, to criticism, whether it is a political creed, a social creed, or a theological creed. And again, we all have our hermeneutical or interpretive ways of understanding the world around us. There is nothing wrong with that. But we have to be open and sensitive to changing that, perspe- that perspective or that perception of reality based on uh, evidence, based on on logic, based on reason, based on experience. All of these things necessarily have to change the way that we perceive and understand reality. And so to sum all this up, the final statement that I am going to make on
on this before we wrap up the show today is that while creeds can sometimes be helpful, at least in terms of knowing where people stand on certain issues, they are ultimately a deficient way of understanding reality. And we have to, as Protestants and libertarians, be opened up to allowing evidence and uh, empirical uh, observation to change the way that we understand the world. Awesome, guys. Well, this has been this has been a really fun and great show. I'm, I'm glad we were able to get through these big ideas in just two weeks. I know that I left a lot on the table the last couple of weeks. I try to keep these episodes right around, uh, right between 30 and 45 minutes every single week, and I've done a pretty good job of doing that so far. Um, and so because of that, I necessarily have to cut and select and think really hard about what I'm going to say in each episode. If you feel like there's something that I missed out today, or if there's something you'd like to know a little bit more about, or if I brought up an issue that you would like to hear me raise on a future episode, please tell me. Um, you can email me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. Again, I'm, I'm not currently on social media, although if I continue to gain followers, uh, that might change in a little bit, just trying to think through what my options are here as a, as a content creator and a podcast host. But again, I'm, I'm open to your suggestion. I definitely plan on doing some episodes in the future that are related to current events and things like that, but I definitely want to keep this, this show more of a timeless show where I deal with kind of classic themes theological or social or political or philosophical issues. Um, and if there's something that you th- that you want me to talk about or that you think I should research or address on the show, email me and I'll be more than happy to try to work that into my schedule. I always love uh, hearing from you guys and I always love hearing your ideas. Next week, going to be a really big one. We're going to be discussing biblical interpretation. So I've talked a lot about the Bible as a source of, as, as a source of authority and I've given kind of hints and, uh, and glimmers here and there about how I understand the Bible and about how I interpret the Bible, but we're going to dive into that full scale next week. So we're going to look at how we come to an understanding of what the authors of the Bible were trying to say, and we are going to be discussing what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. So for those of you guys that are coming here from a a libertarian perspective and might not know much about the Bible or might not have read the Bible much, I'm hoping that after next week's show, this might clear up a lot of the barriers that you might have to reading the Bible. And even if you're not on board with this whole Christianity thing, The Bible has had more of an influence on Western society than any other collection of books ever written, bar none. There's not even that's not even not even a contest or a competition there. And so, being able to understand the Bible historically and reasonably is going to help you out. I think just better understand society and the world around you. So, I'm really excited about the opportunity to take a look at the Bible next week and to take a look at biblical interpretation. And hopefully, we'll all be uh, better off and much more informed about how to read the Bible sensitively and historically after next week's episode. Thanks again for hanging on this week, guys, and I will see you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to reach out to me about suggestions for future shows, you can contact me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. That's theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.